Welcome to the podcast. On today's program, Stephen Crowder joins us talking about the news of the day and his odd affinity of self-punishment. For some reason, he's going to try to fact-check CNN live for multiple hours, which would just be torture. I don't know why anyone would want to do that to himself. He's, He's doing that for you, apparently. Uh, you can uh, check that out. It's on Blaze TV, of course. If you go to blazetv.com slash Glenn, use the promo code Glenn, you'll save 30 bucks off your subscription. We also talk about the new allegations against uh, Joe Biden. Now, the allegation has been around for a while, but there's new backup. Another person, another witness has come forward who heard about the story at the time. We'll get into that. And we talk about a new thing that's going on in on normal cable television Lots of swearing. Uh, Is this a new thing that's going on? And not even for adult-aimed programming, but just kind of constantly going on. S-bombs and F-bombs and everything without edits. It's happening on ESPN right now. We'll just talk about that. Um, So you can check that out, by the way. uh, Don't forget Glenn's new book called Arguing with Socialists. It's available uh, everywhere you can't go, like bookstores. But you can go to Amazon or glennbeck.com and get your copy now. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and click over to Stu Does America, my show, that I would love for you to do the same. Uh, here is today's podcast. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. Okay, so there is a new update now. The former neighbor of Joe Biden's accuser, Tara Reid, has now corroborated the sexual assault account. We now have the mother calling into Larry King in 1993, and we have uh, probably three witnesses. One is the brother Uh, who said, I remember her saying that he had his hands underneath her clothes. He said, but I don't remember anything else. And that, to me, is consistent. I can't imagine telling your brother Mm -hmm. all of the gory details uh, on that when it happened. So we have that as a witness. Uh, By the way, she's a Democrat. That's something that's important that we never had with Kavanaugh's accuser. She was somebody that was leading the charge to get Kavanaugh uh, to not be or any of the Republicans to not be the Supreme Court justice. Uh, So she is on record as an advocate against the Supreme Court nominee of, of Donald Trump. Tara Reid is an active Democrat. Well, so is the former neighbor. The former neighbor, they have checked all of her uh, her social media. She has constantly been a fan of Joe Biden and constantly been a Democrat. She is wildly anti-Trump, so she doesn't seem to have an axe to grind with Joe Biden. So her name is Linda Lacasse. She's a Biden supporter. And she said that Reed told her about the alleged assault in detail in 1995 or 1996. She said, I know this happened because I remember talking to her about it. Uh, They were apparently sitting out on the porch one night of her house. They were neighbors. Um, And uh, she said that we would we would sit out on the porch sometimes and we would just talk. And she's a victim of abuse. And she brought up this abuse that she had. uh, And apparently, Reed then said, 
this happened to me and she told her the whole story she said i remember her saying there was this person she was working for and she idolized him he kind of put her up against a wall he put his hand up her skirt and he uh put his inserted his fingers in her uh she felt like she was assaulted you think she really didn't feel that there was anything she could do about it I remember she got very emotional as she told the story. She was crying. She was upset. And the more she talked about it, the more she started crying. I remember saying that she needed to file a police report. She said she doesn't recall whether Reed supplied any other details like the location or anything. else. I don't remember all the details. I just remember the skirt. I remember the fingers. I remember she was devastated. That sounds completely consistent and... Uh, worth looking into doesn't condemn Joe Biden, but is least worth looking into. It should there should be some sort of investigation. I don't know how you're going to investigate something this old, but it it should be done. Yeah, and I, to point out, Glenn, here this is a more recent incident by a, a considerable margin than when we dealt with with Brett Kavanaugh. It is a, a, a situation where we have now four people who are witnesses the we had only two uh and then the mom we now have kind of saying at least something went on we don't know what it was so that would be a third and then the fourth here is this neighbor uh, again who seems to be a joe still a joe biden supporter even after the sexual assault which is a considerable amount of dedication uh, to the candidate listen to this Listen to this. She said, um, coming forward to support an allegation against the Democratic presidential uh, presidential nominee may have repercussions for me. I have no political axe to grind and I intend on voting for Biden. I I personally am a Democrat, a very strong Democrat. I'm for Biden regardless, but I have to come out and say this. That's that's really, uh, really strong. And, and look, now, I don't think this is this is proof it happened because, you know, look, there this is a there's a presidential nomination on the line. Obviously, Biden is vulnerable. I have no idea if these people are coming up out and making it up. They may be. But we do know that this was con- considered absolute proof when James Comey wrote notes about a meeting in, with, with Donald Trump. Um, when, you, when you say something at the time, and we look back 30 years later, that's just absolute proof in the, in the eyes of the left. I don't think that's a right. fair standard because you don't know what the motivations are uh, for, for someone doing this. But we do know that it's massively more evidence than ever came up from anything to do with, we uh, with, all said, with Kavanaugh. When it first happened with Kavanaugh, we all said, look, this is disturbing. We should look into it. We didn't condemn him. We said we should look into it. When, when he testified and Blasey Ford testified that day, we went into it thinking she could be very, very credible. By the end of it and listening to him and her, we discovered which one was more credible uh, or, or not. Um, or, uh, eventually, everything Blasey Ford fell apart. Everything she said all fell apart. This might as well, but it should be looked into when you have. Here's another person uh, that come uh, is coming out now. Uh, she worked uh, as a legislator, legislative staffer in uh, Senator Jack O'Connell's office in California. Another Democrat. She said. 
She and Reed worked alongside each other from 94 to 96. She said she remembers Reed complaining at the time about being mistreated by her former employee. Reed said she had been sexually harassed by her former boss while she was in D.C. And as a result of her voicing her concerns to a supervisor, she was let go. She was fired. What I do remember, Sanchez said yesterday, is reassuring her that nothing like that would ever happen to her in our office, that she was in a safe place free from any sexual harassment. Uh, uh, she does remember that the employer Sanchez Sanchez recalls uh, of of Reed was Biden. Sanchez praised praised Reed for speaking out. It takes great courage and strength to come forward. Sanchez said in a statement, uh, it's much easier to keep silent. However, I understand the duty that we have as women to share our story, regardless of who the perpetrator may be. All reasoned. Yeah, uh, it, it, look, it, it is it. more than you got for any of these accusations uh, that we went through uh, with Kavanaugh or, you know, several other figures on the right. Uh, this is this is stuff that I mean, look, we should step back and say this, that it is not impossible to arrange a few people, some of which that you're closely related to, to back you on a story that's false. It's very possible that it's false. I, I don't know that there's enough evidence. There's a lot of questions in her story. Some of it sounds very questionable to me. Um, it's something that, as we've always said, when someone comes forward with a serious accusation like that, they should be taken seriously. However, I, I, can't, I can't get over just the double standard of the media. And when I look at this and I say, there's two standards here, the, the Kavanaugh standard and the way they're treating Joe Biden right now. I think the way they're treating Joe Biden right now is closer to the way they should do it because they shouldn't necessarily yes. just convict him and destroy his life like they did Kavanaugh. Destroy his life. Yep. As Stephen Crowder mentioned, like there is a double standard here. I don't, the Kavanaugh standard is so horrific to me. I want nothing to do with it. The Biden one doesn't seem to be exactly right either, considering we've now gone Glenn, 33 days since this allegation and joe biden despite dozens of interviews has never been asked about it that's incredible there's no way to dismiss that other than massive media bias and complete journalistic malpractice there's no other way to let explain me you, that let me give you one more thing i think in tara reed's favor uh you know things like this change your life so what did she do Reed went to work in the domestic violent unit, uh, domestic violence unit for the King County prosecutor in Seattle. She received her law degree from Seattle University School of Law in 2004. So she went back to school. Uh, she later served as legal services director for Snohomish County Center for Battered Women. This woman had a change. She went back to school after the incident. She gets her law degree and goes to work uh, to help fight uh abusers and battered women that too sounds consistent and again there's no axe to grind here it's not like if she was a if she was well, a trump supporter mm -hmm. i would be skeptical but seeing that she is a strong democrat who has always liked joe biden idolized him uh, i mean it's it's hard to find a reason why someone would go out and just destroy their lives. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program.
We are living in unprecedented times. We are living in history. What we do now, what we have done over the last few weeks and how we react to this in the coming months will be studied by historians for a very, very long time. Uh, This is the biggest event uh, probably since World War II. Um, It is the biggest non-war event maybe since the end of slavery. I mean, I can't think of anything uh, bigger than uh, than this. Um, It is unprecedented and we need to keep journals and we need to make records. uh, And this is the first time. I mean, I've always been interested in StoryCorps because I thought, oh, that it would be really cool to do and have conversations and have them on record at the National Archives, et cetera, et cetera. So people could go by, you know, 100 years from now and they'll see what we were saying to each other. Um, But this is the first time that I thought having my family on record talking about what this experience is like would be really remarkable for future generations, even if it's just for my family. StoryCorps is something that the people that listen to NPR know all about. It, it, they've been with NPR, covered on NPR for a very long time. Uh, and they reached out to us and said, can we get some conservatives to participate in StoryCorps? We want to make sure we're recording all voices. And so Dave Isay, he's the founder and president of StoryCorps, um, he was in my office a couple of times. And I just find it of real value and they're doing something right now uh, that is recording the voices of people during this pandemic uh, again for history. Uh, and Dave joins us right now. Hi, Dave. Glenn, it's good to talk to you. Good to see you. Yeah, good to talk to you. Um, so, Dave, tell me what you guys have been doing, because usually you bring people into these little remote studios. But you're doing this now all over Zoom or Skype or FaceTime. Yeah. Yeah. So um, as, as you know, StoryCorps has been around for a while and it's a real simple mm-hmm. idea. It's about connecting families. So you have to um, you, you bring your we started with a booth in Grand Central Terminal. Bring your grandmother to that booth face to face. There's a facilitator and you interview her about her life. And as you know, the microphone gives you the license to talk about things you've never talked about before, to talk about important things. Right. So people think of it as right. if I had 40 minutes left to live, what would I say to this person who means so much to me? What would I ask of them? And at the end of the 40 minutes, you get a copy. It's only audio. And another goes to the Library of Congress. So your great, great, great grandkids can get to know your grandmother through her life and story. And essentially, because of what's being talked about, we're kind of passing wisdom from one generation to the next. And it's like the opposite of reality TV, right? Nobody does it to get rich or famous. It's just this act of generosity and love. We've had 600,000 Americans participate um, in this so far. And when the pandemic hit, we decided to make a very fast switch and worked with a technology company called, well, we, we, we figured out a, a technology solution to allow us to do this online. Um, I called the CEO of a company called Vonage, which was the company that mm-hmm. um, was the technology we wanted to use and said, we want to do this. And he said, okay, you can have everything for free. And we built this platform called StoryCorps Connect, which for the first time allows you to do, it is somewhat like a Zoom interview, but it's um, mm-hmm. it's more secure. The audio is better. You see, it, you you dial, you ask your grandmother to make an, a, you, you, you send your grandmother a link and you go to this site and you do a StoryCorps interview. You can see her, someone who you're isolated from. 
And at the end of the conversation, you hit upload and it goes to the Library of Congress. So like you said, we're, we're here collecting um, this primary source material about um, this incredible moment we're living through. And also, you know, I, I also think that everything about StoryCorps in some ways reminds us of our mortality, right? Because, um, you know, we, we are, we're all going to die. <laughs> my, my, my communications people hate when, when I say this, but that's what StoryCorps is. It shakes you on the shoulder and reminds you that, you know, what's important and to say the things you want to say to people now. Um, so, so that's a, another given urge, an, another urgency of this, you know, it's, it's an ability to connect with elders who are isolated and tell them you love them by interviewing them. It's a way to capture the stories of the moment. Um, it's, it's, you know, that two things, um, from a story interview, uh, and I know, you know, this one is that no matter how well, you know, the person that you're interviewing, you're going to find out things you never knew before. And the second is you're never yep. going to regret it. Um, you and I usually, you know, we've been on the radio together for as as friends for a couple of years, talking about uh, the side project of StoryCorps bringing the country together, um, the 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 kind of culture of contempt that we're living in, um, and we've dialed back on that for a couple of months to go back to the original premise of StoryCorps and just help us, um, you know, uh, call a loved one and and tell them that we love them. Mother's Day would be a great time to do this. You know, it costs nothing. It's the least expensive, most meaningful gift you can give. All right. So, Dave, um, bring bring uh, one of, uh, you know, one of these that you have recorded recently. Um, set this up. Sure. So I think the clip we're playing is actually so this is one of the very first StoryCorps Connect interviews. And it's actually my kid who has covid my 11 year old and his grandmother, my mom, talking to each other. How has living through the experience of COVID-19 made you feel? It's terrible. I hate being alone. I hate not being able to see you, Toby. I hate not being able to hug you, but I can live through it. Are you afraid? You know, I'm not afraid of dying. I've had a great life. I've done my job. What I'm afraid of is losing somebody I love. And that makes me sleepless. My grandmother died in the flu epidemic of 1918, which we're thinking a lot about because we're in a pandemic, right? Yeah. And my mother and her sisters, they were all orphans. And that gave me a sense that you can have troubles and sorrows, but your family, if you're very lucky and you're very loving, it will survive. Toby, what was it like to have COVID? It wasn't great. Are you feeling better now? Mm-hmm. Are you all better? No, I'm not all better, but I'm feeling better. Good. I'm so glad you're feeling better. I want you to be well, and I love you from A to Z and back. You're living through one of the most crazy and consequential times in a century, and you survived. Yeah, I love you. Brother. I love you, Toby. That is such a great story. So I mean, that's just so touching, so touching. Well, just, How's your you son, know, that, Dave? He's you know he's still sick, um, but he's he's a tough guy, and you know we're very 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 lucky. <laughs> we're the lucky yeah. ones. You know, it's like a long flu, yeah. um, and there are so many. You know, my, my um, I, I was my assistant you know, lost her, um, aunt, uh, her cousin, who's uh, 40 years old, the mother of three little kids. I mean, it's, it's, th- this is what's happening here. We're just blessed. 
um, he's going to be fine. Yeah. But there's a lot of bad Good. stuff going on out there, especially here in New York. It'll be interesting to see. We have a neighbor right down the street. Uh, she's 95 years old. And um, we check in with her and her husband from time to time. And uh, she remembers uh, the after effects of of uh, the last pandemic. Right. And she said, I, I, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And to have a 95-year-old uh, say, I've never seen anything like this is a little sobering. Uh, and to be able to, to talk to grandparents and talk to people who have lived a full life and have them say, this is important. Uh, just, I don't know. It, it's, it's different than seeing anybody else. A president can say it, a prime minister, or, you know, Walter Cronkite. It's not the same as having a 95-year-old say, this is new. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. And I think, I mean, we, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about kind of the core of StoryCorps because we spend so much time talking about the divides. But, you know, I think yeah. we devalue the wisdom of our elders, you know, and uh, there's agree. so much that we can learn from them. And we live in a yeah. we live in this disposable culture. It's about Twitter, you know. It's about everything's a, mm -hmm. it's gone in a second, you know. And what StoryCorps does is focus on what's real and enduring. Um, and and there's no more important time than now to to um, to, to focus on that. And and again, you know, so, you, you, we never know what's going to happen. So the idea of of saying the things that you want to say to the people who you love. I mean, I have people come up to me every day under normal circumstances when I'm running around the, the world saying, I wish I had interviewed my grandmother. I wish I had interviewed my sister. Oh. I wish I had interviewed my father, but I waited too long. And, you know, the message yeah. now is don't wait. It's time. So the website is storycoreconnect.org. Um, it's free. And, um, you know, we think of it as, you know, it's a public service and it's a, it's a, you know, listening to a loved one is a way to say, is a way to tell them how much you, they mean to you. So don't, don't wait. Yeah, it's a great thing for Mother's Day, but it's a great thing just uh, to do, you know, today, just to, to do it. And um, history as told by the people who are living it is so important. Dave, what he has done uh, with StoryCorps is, I think, one of the one of the most important projects of uh, of a historian uh, that I can think of. And uh, please get involved. StoryCorps Connect dot org that's story core c-o-r-p-s connect dot org thank you so much dave talk to you again Glenn, we'll talk soon be well you're listening to the best of the glenn beck program Dr. Thomas Yadigar, ICU Director, Providence Cedars-Sinai, Tarzana Medical Center. Obviously, this guy is no slouch. He is worth listening to. He's a pulmonologist uh, who says he has some important information to share with the public and doctors around the world. Uh, welcome, doctor. How are you? I'm well, Glenn. How are you doing? Good. I appreciate you having the guts to come on and uh, and, and possibly say things that 
some people don't want people to hear it's weird this situation that we're in right now how can you help us navigate um well you know we've been treating patients for probably about six to seven weeks and the first few weeks it was my our experience was the same as everywhere else where patients were coming in um they were becoming very ill on the floor. We really couldn't figure out why. Um, we had to put them on ventilators. And before very long, I just saw more and more patients in my intensive care unit. And the thing that was very concerning was that, one, I didn't really understand what the process was that was causing them to get so sick. And uh, two, what was really unusual was that it almost seemed like every single patient had a different type of a disease process. Yes, they had what we thought was pneumonia, yes, they were on a ventilator, but they weren't necessarily acting the same. Um, if, I take, if I can take you back to 10 years ago when we had the H1N1 uh, epidemic, you know, at that time I may have had 10, 15 patients that were on ventilators. But I can go into each room and each of them had the same kind of pathophysiology. Maybe they were at a different stage of the disease, but essentially it was the same disease, which caused us to be able to predict what was going to happen. In these types of patients, there's really no predictability to it. Everyone does something that's unique to themselves, and that's what makes it so difficult to treat because, you know, you, you have no idea what's going to happen the next day. That's kind of scary. Um, is there another disease like this or another virus like this? You know, I've, uh, I've been a pulmonary critical care doctor for 20 years, and I've been the medical director uh, for over 10 years. And, no, I, I have not seen this before in, in my experience. Um, so I've been dealing with the respiratory So that would make it... Go ahead. I, I've just been dealing with respiratory infections of all types of, si- of viruses, bacteria, even fungal infections. You know, there's always some sort of predictability. You know, there's always some sort of a disease pattern. Once you recognize the pattern, you can make the diagnosis, and then you could predict what's going to happen, and you could start a treatment plan, which, you know, will hopefully help the patient. In these types of patients, it, it, there really isn't any predictability. So doesn't that make this harder to treat, and wouldn't that say, don't go to work? Because we don't, we don't have a handle on it. Um, I, I, I guess. I mean, I guess it depends on where you're coming from. Um, I, I was uh, initially I trained in the 1990s in medical school in my internship. That was during the HIV pandemic, and to many mm-hmm. uh, many different factors, this kind of reminds me of that. You know, um, there is a lot of fear, and unfortunately, that's what we've kind of fed into, as opposed to science and fact and logic. And, um, you know, people don't want to necessarily go into the rooms and treat these patients and, and see them, which, which I can understand, you know, that there are, I've spoken to many doctors, many nurses, and some of them, not so much for the fear of their own lives, but some of them have spouses that are on, you know, that may have had transplants or on immunosuppressive therapy, and they're just concerned that, you know, not only can I die, but I can take something back home to my loved ones and, 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 and hurt them. And that was, that's not an unusual thought. I mean, I, I, the same thought went through my head as well. Um, I think that's normal. Um, but you just have to say, okay, but I'm a physician. I'm, I'm a nurse. I'm a healthcare provider. I'm trained for this. I'm going to do the best possible to protect myself. And I'm going to do everything possible to protect my family. But I, ha- I have to treat these patients. Someone has to treat these patients. 
Okay, so you, you've just been asked to command, you know, regionally across four more hospitals because you are performing way above you and your team above any of the hospitals in the Los Angeles area. Um, you haven't lost a single patient. Uh, no one has had to go on a ventilator. Uh, and you say that you have a protocol where you can find certain markers and you'll know who will crash and who won't. Uh, well, first of all, I, I, under normal circumstances, there's 20 physicians that I uh, supervise and we take care of uh, patients at two different hospitals. Um, usually on a daily basis, we take care of 100 to 125 patients, about 30 to 40 of them that are in the intensive care unit. Um, I work both at Providence Cedars-Sinai Tarzana Medical Center as well as uh, West Hills Medical Center. Although I'm not speaking for any entity, this is just my personal observation. I just want to make that clear. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. But that's that's our normal uh, our normal team that we normally uh, take care of patients. And, you know, initially what was happening was, again, you know, patients were coming into the hospital, they were getting sicker, we're, fill it, we're putting them in the ICU, and I, I just thought, okay, I, I don't understand what's happening. So I started reading, I started researching, and one of the things that I first came up with was that, you know, these patients are having what's called a cytokine storm syndrome. Um, and this is a very that's, kind that's, of rare... That's what happened in, that happened in 1918 with pandemic as well, did it not? Um, I, I believe so, although I'm not sure at that time yeah. that, you know, we had the technology to really find out exactly what was happening on a molecular basis. But uh, right. in this syndrome, what happens is that, you know, the patients that are, get very, very sick, the immune system normally mounts a, a response, right? So if you get a bacteria, if you get a virus, it activates your immune system. And then the immune system coordinates its um, activity so that it can destroy the virus or the bacteria. But in a subset of patients, the immune system kind of goes awry. It doesn't act normally. And the immune system gets super ramped up. And instead of attacking the virus, it starts actually attacking the patient's own vital organs. So what mm -hmm. I started noticing was that, you know what, these patients that are going on the respirator, these patients that are what we thought was the virus was causing pneumonia, no, these patients that are coming in and really suddenly becoming so sick, it's actually their own immune system that was causing the problem, not necessarily the virus. Now, don't get me wrong. This is a deadly virus, and just like an influenza virus, it can sure. definitely cause pneumonia. It can definitely cause respiratory failure. If patients have emphysema or heart failure, it can definitely exacerbate those and lead you know, to them to get uh, into the ICU for those diseases as well. But this was doing something unique. This was doing something that I really hadn't seen much in my 20 years where it was activating the immune system, and then now the immune system was causing all the destruction in the lungs, um, not just the virus itself. So in a way, this SARS-CoV-2 causes kind of two different clinical diseases. The first part of it is an infectious disease where the virus is a deadly virus and can seriously do some harm. Um, but then the second, and I think this is probably the more important part, is it causes this activation of the immune system. And it doesn't cause it in all the patients, but it causes it in a subset of the patients that get hospitalized. And these are the patients that we found were coming into our ICU, the majority of the patients went in our ICU. And once, we, once, we, once I started noticing this, I started looking for markers. And these are many and, markers. And how difficult, is, it, how difficult is it to find the markers, and can you be tested uh, for that easily or...? 
Yeah, these are not any um, unusual markers. Actually, a lot of the hospitals are checking the markers. Um, you, you know, but the problem is that there's about six or seven different markers. Some of the markers are important to rule out uh, other disorders like other infections or sepsis and those types of things. And then some of the markers are important to kind of let you know that this inflammatory uh, issue is going on in these patients. Um, so you have, to, you have to look at every single patient individually and you have to go through this kind of exhaustive checklist. One, make sure that there isn't any other problem. Two, then make sure that, you know, to, to check to see if they're having this inflammatory problem. And then if they are, then you have to kind of watch them very, very carefully. And so if you're, what we've noticed... If you're, if you're having the inflammatory problem, that's why, uh, I don't know if you're a believer in this or not, but why uh, hydroxychloroquine might work with some patients and not with others. Yeah, it's, it's, it's possible. I just think probably it wasn't a strong enough uh, anti-inflammatory. Uh, it wasn't a strong enough immunosuppressant. Okay. And there's a lot of research. That, there's a lot of articles that came out and, you know, said that, and at this point we're not really using Zithromax any, azithromycin anymore, and the hydroxychloroquine uh, from system-wide has been kind of uh, on an as-needed basis, an individual case that where you can insert mm-hmm. mm-hmm. whether the patient needs it or not. But the important thing right. was that, you know, when these patients had these inflammatory markers that were elevated, if you follow them very closely, uh, you saw that, you know, a, a minority of them do have this problem where all of a sudden they rapidly, you know, get much worse. And they go from needing very little oxygen to needing to be intubated within a six to twelve hour process. And this was the exciting part, where we can, in, in, before getting to that point, before it needed to be on a respirator, we started treating them very aggressively with anti-inflammatory medication, with strong immunosuppressive medications, which is kind of counterintuitive, right? You think that this patient is here, they have a virus, it's a deadly virus, it's killed what two hundred thousand people across the globe. Um, but now, instead of treating the virus, you're actually giving medicine to suppress the patient's immune system, which is mm. something that's really counterintuitive. But that was what worked for these patients. We were able to now, instead of putting those patients on a ventilator, we were able to give them the medicines, act fast and early, which is, I think, very, very, very important to detect it early and to treat it early. And then at that point, you know, we were able to prevent them from needing to go on a respirator. And that's what really has changed everything around for um, both of our hospitals uh, over the past month. So um, why, why do you think more people haven't discovered this protocol? Are you getting calls from people, you know, from other doctors and hospitals? Um, I am getting calls from other doctors, to, you know, and the calls, I would say, are kind of 50-50. There's a lot of doctors who, unfortunately, are looking for a quick fix, right? So what's the one test? What's the one medicine? And that's the one thing I, can, I can't stress any, any harder to you and your listeners is there isn't necessarily one test and there isn't any one particular um, treatment plan. Every patient has their own kind of individual disease, and we've had to treat every single patient now probably going on 30 to 35 patients that we've treated actively with this with a different regimen. Um, not everyone, you know, you can't treat everyone with the same uh, treatments. There isn't a one-size-fits-all for this disease. You have to do your due diligence. You have to look at the patient in front of you and then, you know, come up with a treatment for the disease that that patient is manifesting. You can't just go through the ICU and start, 
handing out these medicines. If you give this medicine to someone who doesn't need it, you will surely kill them. So now you have to go through, you may have 10 patients in the ICU, and maybe three of them, maybe six of them have this, but the other three or four do not. So you can't just sit there and give this to everyone. You have to go through go through the process with each and every one of these patients and figure out what's going on with them and then come up with the correct treatment for them. One last question, um, uh, doctor, and, and that is uh, last weekend, two ER doctors uh, from Bakersfield, they have seen more than 5,000 coronavirus tests. They held a press conference. The local media covered it, and they reported their findings and said the coronavirus is similar to the seasonal flu for for the most part and quarantine is not helping build a uh, herd immunity and they were confident that reopening was safe but it was their personal opinion um this now has gone against what uh, sounds spooky to me uh the authoritative truth uh and uh, yesterday um the american college of emergency physicians and everybody else uh, hammered them for this uh, for coming out and not walking in lockstep and uh, youtube removed their video uh, saying that it was not part of authoritative truth uh, does that concern you at all that we are silencing people that might disagree uh but but are not you know quacks yeah i mean i think anytime you suppress someone's freedom of speech um and their um thought you know, then I think that's dangerous. Um, so I think, you know, especially from physicians who are on the front line, um, they need to be able to, you know, get out what they're thinking, what they're seeing. I think it, it you know, if you, once you start suppressing that, it makes it very, very, very dangerous. Uh, the one other thing, Glenn, I wanted to kind of tell you, which is something that we've learned over the past uh, week, is that so this virus not only causes the infectious disease, okay, which usually manifests in the first week, but the more important thing is it causes an autoimmune disease, okay? Now, the cytokine storm is one part of it, but the autoimmune disease that it causes could be anything. So now you're reading about all these people who are getting blood clots, which are not responding to the common therapy, mm-hmm. or people who have strokes, or people who have uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which you know is a neuromuscular uh, disorder, or people who develop myocarditis and cardiomyopathy and have sudden death. These are all an autoimmune disease that, that this virus triggers. Now, this isn't an unknown thing. We've known that viruses can you know, trigger autoimmune disease, diseases in the past. It's just that this, disease, this virus does it at an extraordinary pace. It does it in a significant amount of the patients um, that we're seeing in our ICUs. And I think this is the part that I would like to get out, is that I don't think the doctors are recognizing that, you know, besides the virus causing damage, it's triggering an autoimmune disease. And it's the okay. autoimmune process that's causing all the other parts. And it's, it's important Doctor, because... I'm sorry, go ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. Quickly finish. I'm sorry. We're just running out of time. Of course. It's the autoimmune process that if we can detect early... Okay, we're telling all these patients to stay home, stay home, stay home, and then by the time they're coming in, they're too sick. We're missing this. We're missing the part where we can pick up the autoimmune process. If we can detect it early, we can intervene early. We may be able to save a lot of these patients and maybe drastically change what we're doing um, in terms of, you know, having patients stay at home, having everyone be quarantined, and all those kind of things. 
Great. Dr. Dr. Tom uh, Yadigar, the ICU director, Providence Cedar sinai Tarzana Medical Center. Uh, thank you so much for speaking out and thank you for sharing this information. And congratulations to all of the people that you work with on doing such an amazing job. Uh, not having any of the patients on a uh, respirator and um, and so far you haven't lost a patient. Good job. Thank you so much. God bless.